0: Hello oh, and welcome to Franklin and Marshall Colleges' CECL's Research Spotlight, where you can hear stories about how f and faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. CECL, the Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster, funds research to create positive change around the natural environment, poverty and social inequality, and with community-based art. I'm Nancy Curland, an Associate Professor of Organizational Studies and one of the faculty co-directors. The center was created with the generous funding from the Endeavor Foundation. Each episode, we'll highlight the research of one of our grant recipients. Today we're going to be talking with FNM Assistant Professor of Biology and Public Health, Dr. Harriet Okoch, with FNM Assistant Professor of Government and Public Health, Dr. Jennifer Meyer, and with Mr. Kevin Ressler, President and CEO of United Way of Lancaster whose mission is to mobilize the caring power of our community to achieve impactful social change for their project entitled COVID-19 and its economic and social impact in Lancaster County. Welcome Harriet and Jen and Kevin. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. Hello.
1: Kevin, thank you for having me.
0: Hi. Okay, thank you. So I am, I wonder Harriet, if you would start off by telling us about the project and how you and Jen became involved with United Way.
2: Um, I'm actually, I think I'm gonna pass that on to Jen. Jen, do you wanna leave that? Sure.
3: Okay. Um, so as far as we remember, um, the project actually originated between CSCWL and Kevin. They had a series of conversations and sent out a call for uh, faculty involvement on impacts of COVID-19 in Lancaster. Uh, Harriet, Jen, me, and Emily, (laughs) uh, Emily Marshalls in sociology and also public health faculty, the three of us are all, all wanted to study the health and economic impacts of COVID-19. And then we were later joined by Wei Ting-Yen, who's in the government department, and Jesse Cox in Spanish. And they also had interests waiting, and economic impacts of COVID-19 and Jesse in the impacts on English language learning. So then through the generous funding of CSEWL and United Way, we got to work and we met with 12 community organizations to design a survey that um, answered the questions that those organizations were interested in learning. And what we think sets this, particular study apart is that there's lots of surveys at the national level on the impacts of COVID-19, but we really wanted to look at our local level. Lancaster County doesn't have a public health department, which has made um, the policy response to COVID-19 um, pretty fragmented. And we wanted to be able to that be sure that our survey could inform this localized policy context.
0: Thank you so much for that, Jen. I'm going to turn over to Kevin now and let him fill in how he became part of the project because I know that it was through conversations with the center and then uh, we'll go back and talk about more of the details of the actual project.
1: So, yeah, I'm, I'm Kevin Ressler. I'm the president and CEO of United Way of Lancaster County and I started just about a year ago at the beginning of 2020 in January and I was looking at how we had been doing our processes and we have a funding model that we've been using called a collective impact model, the idea being that instead of looking at a single agency to single agency approach to problem solving, if we can find and identify community needs, we can work collaboratively, which increases efficiencies and effectiveness of the change we want to see in the community. In order to make sure that we're actually returning on the community investment of donation dollars, we of course want to track and monitor statistics and, and data. And we had for years partnered with Franklin and the Marshall College to do some of that work. When I saw the pandemic beginning to happen, I realized that there wasn't a lot of people modifying the data tracking. So much of our data tracking is based off census in modern America across the board. And that's, of course, trailing data. And so that concerned me that decisions were being made without looking at current and predictive future data. So I I reached out to Ramon Escadero and said, what is the Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster doing? I, I need to understand this project because I think we could partner to to do more than what we had been doing from data collection before to start looking at uh, things that were outside of our usual funding. And so that blossomed into this conversation with multidisciplinary faculty members and became a much, much more interesting idea than I ever had initially. we're really excited that it became what it became because that ended up helping us to shape some shorter term funding that we were doing and just the way we were thinking about the pandemic because it wasn't the priority of local government to do surveys. We'd ask them for funding, they weren't interested. It wasn't the priority of even sort of national government to, to focus on this. And we knew that if we weren't gonna see coordinated efforts at a higher level than us, federal response, state response. And it was super important for us to go bottom up and try to create some level of data-driven response from from the community.
0: Okay, thank you. So I'm gonna push it back now to Jen and to Harriet to ask. I know there are five faculty members and I will put that in the overview uh, for the podcast, Um, but I'm wondering if you could tell us more about the exact research questions you're focusing on And I know that you're still in the process of collecting data, but you have some preliminary results, if you can share those with us.
2: We'll talk a little bit about um, the different research um, foci, and maybe Jen can add to that. But I mean, when when you think about it, I'm I'm in the public health department, and my research focus is mainly around the issues of health. And my interest um, for this survey was thinking about how um, mental health is being impacted by um, the pandemic. I was really interested in that and I think um, looking at Jessie Cox, she was very much interested in how do the disruptions to lifestyle that have been caused by the pandemic impact on English language. So really she was interested in populations that speak English as a second language and wanting to see how any disruptions as a result of the pandemic are affecting that uptake and have they been newer um, avenues of learning English that have been created by the very different ways that people have tried to, you know, be geniuses in maintaining the services that they're providing. Um, I'll let maybe Jen speak to a few of the other research interests, particularly hers.
3: Sure. I think um, both Wei Ting and I were very interested in the economic impacts of COVID 19 in Lancaster County. So, um, job loss, financial stability, things like that. Um, and I was also particularly interested to see how um, COVID 19 may have impacted people's preferences or demand for a public health department, because that, like I said, that's something that we're missing. And then Emily Marshall in sociology was really interested in looking at. Um, worker safety conditions and um, child care conditions and people's um, experiences with those. So can you, uh, I'm going I'm to pull Kevin in,
0: in a minute because I know he has a lot to say about the public health department um, idea, but I'm wondering if the two of you could give us some idea of what preliminary results are before we transition over there.
3: Sure. Um, so I'd say at this point, we're still, like you said, still analyzing data, but we do have some pretty stark results already. Um, one of the key findings that we have is that COVID-19 has hit lower income communities and people of color uh, much, much harder. But they are also the same people that are much more likely to engage in protective behavior. So much more likely to socially distance, wear masks, etc. We don't see those sorts of behaviors at such high rates among white communities and higher income communities. Um, so, I think about almost two thirds of non-Hispanic blacks said that the COVID-19 pandemic was very serious in their community and less than one third of non-Hispanic whites thought it was very serious in their community. We see similar things when we look at the economic impacts. So about a third of the respondents in the total sample report losing some form of work since March 2020. So that's a huge economic impact that Lancaster County has experienced. And again, lower income respondents and people of color were more likely to bear that economic burden. So they were more likely to report self-reported financial strain and loss of permanent job. And then about one in six of our lowest income respondents were very concerned that they would lose their job in the next three months, which indicates that this job loss, this economic burden isn't done in Lancaster County, it's ongoing. So those are some of our key results. Um, We also, I'll let Kevin talk about public health department um, and I'm excited to talk to him about those results too. But we also found that there's very, very high demand for a public health department in Lancaster that people um, recognize that this is something that we need here. So Kevin, if you will tell us about
0: this vision for a public health department and what's lacking currently in Lancaster.
1: Yeah, so, you know, public health departments in the state of Pennsylvania have been around in various forms since the 50s or so. Uh, We saw an uptick in the 70s and then uh, hasn't been a whole lot of new ones started since then. But, you know, there's a lot of counties in Pennsylvania that do have public health departments, particularly the larger ones. And Lancaster sort of sits at the top of that list of a county of our size not to have one. And, And the short history is that this has been a conversation going on for a while. And about 10 years ago was the last time it went up for a vote in front of the county commissioners, whether or not they would authorize one. And based on our state structure, it has to be the county municipality has to host it. You can't have it be run by a hospital or system or something like that. And so the last time they came up for a vote, the commissioners didn't vote on it. And there's been an organization around that same period of time called the Partnership for Public Health, which I'm on the board of. And they have tried to help provide some focus, uh, but fully acknowledge that it's simply not possible for a small nonprofit to be a public health department. And we're seeing right now this challenge where other communities are able to coordinate across their healthcare systems better than we are, with different prioritizations than the the healthcare systems would have on their own, uh, vaccine rollouts, all of that stuff. Uh, but but we also know that it's not just about COVID. The public health department, uh, you know, Harriet has done stuff with lead that we've had a problem with in this community, and you know, there's a whole host of other issues that without a coordinated effort, we can't ensure, number one, that the appropriate health priorities are the ones that bubble to the top, and number two, that the execution on supports for public health initiatives are done in an equitable fashion. It's really important for us to understand that our country has not been based from its origins on equality. We know that, right? But even in the ways in which we've improved, think of civil rights era. Think about things that But the equal, you know, the the Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, um, you know, the the sense of equal as if that's justice. But that's not justice. Equity is justice. Taking into consideration historical inequities uh, or the lack of opportunity currently for for groups to access or, or to participate in certain things. And so a public health department is able to balance the way government traditionally thinks, even in schools today, about equality as an objective. And a public health department can come in and say, yeah, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but equity is our goal here. Because that is gonna be necessary to solve the problem in the most efficient, effective, and just way.
0: Okay, thank you. So I wanna take it down a level. Based on the research, and I want to understand better your, your a more uh, practical understanding of your uh, vision for a public health department. How did the research inform your vision for the public health department and like what are some steps that you could actually take if you had a public health department based on the research that the FNM scholars completed?
1: One of the things that is so important when we talk about public health department is to understand the fact that the lack of a public health department means guesswork, and nobody wants to do guesswork. The reason we don't have a public health department is an assumption politically that the community wouldn't be interested in it because of the way voter registration and voter patterns happen. What the research is showing us is that that's not necessarily the case. So initiatives in the past to push for one have considered a referendum, but the assumption is that the referendum would lose. The assumption from the commissioners is that that it would be a losing electoral piece. What we're seeing here is that the community may not actually align with the assumptions we have because public health is not a partisan issue. So that allows us a greater level of comfort as we have these conversations to go in about what the advantages are as opposed to feeling like we need to talk politics, which isn't what we want to talk about. We want to talk about health. The other thing that has been fascinating to me, the research, is we hear both nationally and even locally that there are uh, higher risk factors for communities of color to get COVID or to suffer from them. Uh, and, And so One, and I'm not saying that this is happening across the board, but one assumption naturally then would be, oh, maybe communities of color aren't taking it as seriously. I've heard this said, right? But the research shows us, no, they are taking it more seriously. So the problems, again, back to the issue of equity, the problems may be uh, related to deeper systemic issues that we're not going to guess our way out of. And so it's incredibly important to to rely on data points to understand this work. And I'll say personally, anecdotally, I live in one of the poorest parts of Lancaster County. My my neighborhood is one of the poorest parts of Lancaster County in the southeast part of the city. And I noticed my neighbors who are Black and poor almost immediately were the first group uh, to wear masks. These are families who are less likely to have health insurance, or if they have health insurance, less likely to be able to pay the copay. And so they have to take it more seriously because help is not built into their assumptions in the way that someone who has healthcare access and it's just paying a little bit of money can feel more invincible to the threat.
0: Thank you. Um, I wonder if I could pull Harriet and Jen back in and ask how the research inform the need and also Harriet you can speak to your lead research if you want in terms of informing the need for a public health department so either of you we
2: did consider that as um we structured the experiment to find out the demand for public health we actually did we set it up as an experiment and we wanted to see would people support Um, a public health, would they show demand for a public health department if we mentioned COVID only? Or should we also pick another condition that has been existent in Lancaster and people are aware of and see if that subgroup of people who were given what we call the lead treatment, so we asked questions about their demand for public health department given the prevalence of lead poisoning in Lancaster. And what was interesting to find was that both groups, those who did get the um, COVID-19 experiment and those who got the lead poisoning were equally um, in support of a public health department. And so I think, and I'll I'll let Jen speak more to that, but I think it's, it's important to realize that this demand is not just as a result of COVID-19. And that had we done something like this earlier, we would have had the department in place now, and that would have done all the coordination for the different responses um, in terms of where do we put the testing sites? How do we communicate? I mean, a public health department is tasked with very important things like um, health promotion, health communication, how do we make sure that everybody's getting this information and not just getting it, but getting it at a level that they can comprehend. So if it's written material, are we sure that it's at the grade level of our population? If it is media, do we know that what percentage of our population has access to that type of media? And if they don't, how do we reach them? So these are the type of nuanced things that maybe we don't think about as we think about a public health department, but really, really important to understand the communities they are working with and understand how to package messages um, for them. So even with a homeless population, how do we address the COVID-19 pandemic in a homeless population? How do we think about it in um, populations that don't speak English? So our materials, if we print it only in English and in Spanish, then we have this flat refugee population that isn't going to get that information, right? And so those are the things that we are hoping this experiment um, result will create changes that will be beneficial to the whole community.
0: I have two questions. Uh, so I'm curious, what do people understand a public health department is? Um, Harry, I really appreciate the way you fleshed that out. I'm, I'm curious if people have a common understanding of what it is. And I'm curious what's happening now then, who's taking up all these responsibilities other than the one nonprofit that Kevin mentioned. I don't know if Jen, if you want to answer that.
3: I I can answer a bit of it and then maybe others can can chime in. Thank Um, you. Yeah. So. we didn't ask questions about their understanding of a public health department. We gave them that information as part of the survey, part of the experiment that Harriet referenced. We gave information, these are the typical things that a public health department would do, and um, then use some techniques to elicit their demand for a public health department. And what we found was that 93% of respondents said that they at least had some level of demand, that this was something that they would entertain wanting, right? So that's very, very high, higher than we would usually see in these experiments. So that's to Kevin's point about, we can't just assume that this is a political thing. This is actually something that people want. And like Harriet said, it's not just because of COVID-19. When we talked about lead, they were equally interested. So um, there's that. Sorry, what was your second question, Nancy?
0: I was curious who's taking up all these tasks, these responsibilities? How is it being coordinated at this point?
3: So I think Kevin and Harriet can speak to that too, but I'll just say that when we met with the 12 community organizations, as we were designing the survey, it was really, really clear that there was a very fragmented approach, right? So um, because of HIPAA protections, LGH couldn't be in communication with Lancaster Health Center. They couldn't talk about where they were seeing outbreaks because their patient information was protected. But if they could give that information to a centralized health department, that centralized health department could create a unified response. And so that's what was lacking. And then same with social services, each individual community organization was doing great work, but was doing it sort of individually. And so what the public health department could do is really bring that together. I don't know, Kevin or Harriet, if you have anything to add there.
1: Well, what I would add is just today, I got an email uh, through our two-on-one system from one of the local EMS systems who's trying to do vaccinations and asked if we can help them coordinate scheduling, right? That's, that's insane. Like we, That's not who should be asked. It may happen, but uh, the two-on-one system shouldn't be scheduling vaccine appointments, uh, but they're, for HIPAA purposes, are stuck outside of the other vehicles of health. So who's taking the lead? Mostly it's been LG Penn, because they're the largest employer, they're the largest hospital system here. Um, and they've done some things, right? Like they coordinated with UPMC to do uh, a testing place downtown, Clipper Stadium, and you know, but. There's a requirement for all hospitals in the country to do a CHIP program, which is called the Community Health Improvement Plan. And so they look at previous three years of data, then they come up with a plan for what they're going to focus on for the next three years. Each hospital is required to do this. In Lancaster, LG leads that and WellSpan and UPMC participate with them so that there's a coordinated focus there's good things about that and bad things about that you know it's sort of like competition can breed other attention but it creates a coordinated program but this to the point of are those various uh awarenesses created by that plan the most appropriate need for the community right That may be the case, Uh, but the hospital system isn't going to look at the community and say, here's a need in the community. We have no expertise. We have no skill sets in that area. We're going to focus on that for the next three years. They're going to look at what's achievable and that's completely justifiable by them. But the community needs a lead organization that's able to say, this may not be easily achievable, but this is the most important thing for our community. So so LG ends up right now taking a large part of that lead. And then the other important part there is the federally qualified health centers, which Jennifer referenced earlier, Lancaster Health Center, uh, who recently merged with WellSpan Health, who who is, uh, you know, Lebanon County and, and parts of Lancaster County, so that there's a cohesive, starting to be looking at regional At the end of the day, one of the concerns I have when we talk about what is a public health department and who thinks what it is, one of the concerns is that a lot of people think it's just data. And so they think that they can solve this problem if the state health department just gave our county the data, then they could figure it out on their own, but that's not sufficient. You need expertise. My brother is a master's of public health at Johns Hopkins. And the way that he talks about and thinks of these things is very different than when I talk to the local political organizations or the the local, uh, even the organizations within the county services.
0: Thank you. So what are your next
2: steps? I mean, before, before maybe we talk a little bit about the next steps, I would like to acknowledge that um, this project has really been great in um, creating great collaborations um, collaborations um, between community members and academic you know partners Um, it's also been really great in terms of so i think jen said this we spoke to 12 community members partners some of them we had had relationships with them before and some of them we hadn't so the center for sustained engagement with lancaster introduced us to these new partners and So just creating those new relationships is great. And I can already tell you that um, two of the faculty have since invited some of these new partners into their classrooms to when they teach, right? And that gives us this opportunity, which is really great to expose the students to people who are working in the community so that students are just not learning theoretically, but also understanding what is happening in their communities, how they can be involved in the communities and creating that um, lifelong way of thinking and not separating the academics from community. So I think that's one great thing that's happened. Um, The other thing is just strengthening collaborations within the academics, right? So faculty members, some of us in the group had worked Together and some of us, it was our first time to work together. You know, with especially with with Jesse Cox, who's from the Spanish department. Like, just a different type of collaboration, and working with people from different disciplines always lets you see a different way of thinking, a different way of um, different perspectives and organizations. So that's been um, really great. And I think the last thing that I want to talk about is how. Even though we are all at FNM as faculty, we had this great opportunity to also work with the Center for Opinion Research, and this is a group that periodically. Um, you know has polls going on so it was great working with them because since they're in the FNM system they understand the procedures and processes that we needed to get this research and project going but also because they've done a lot of work with the communities they were trusted in the communities and that really helped advance the pace at which we were working um, so I think we have to give credit to the benefits of a collaboration, as can be felt both by the community, but also as us individual faculties. And I don't know if Kevin, you want to add anything to that, but I just I found it to be really great. And I should also say that in our project, as we're working with communities that um, speak English as a second language, we've had the opportunity to actually engage um, and pay Interpreters, um, people who can help make sure that the voices of those people who speak English as a second language are heard, as we think about the different impacts of COVID nineteen in the community.
1: I would, I would only say that, you know, I talked earlier about our collective impact partnership model as a funding model, but it's also the work. It can't just be the funding. It has to be who's invited and who's involved beyond who gets money for, for a specific project, and this is a prime example of how that work becomes more effective by working across lines and with different partners and being able to look and say, okay, what what questions do you find valuable? The the way that that question is approached or, or asked is that speaking to your local community is as excellent as the, Ac- academic additions are in this process, they still don't have expertise in that particular community. Um, and as aware as I may or may not be in a variety of things from our partnerships, I'm not as aware as the partner is. And so being able to work in this way is just, again, proof of the effectiveness and efficiency of working through collaboration.
0: I appreciate hearing that. But uh, Jen, do you have anything to add? I think
3: they caught it. Great. So then I will now ask about next steps.
1: You, you all can start because I'm kind of curious. <laughs>
3: um, we, well, we're currently disseminating results. Um, we're trying to analyze the data as fast as we can. So we're disseminating results to community organizations. We hope to disseminate them to the mayor's office and the county commissioners um, as, as soon as we can. Um, And then we are about to launch a second wave that's planned for february and that's gonna allow us to have um, an understanding of how these conditions have changed over time so if one in six low income respondents were concerned about losing their jobs three months ago we can see if that concern has has come to fruition right we can see how things have changed over time Um, And then the the other thing that we're really interested in getting at with the second wave is attitudes about vaccination. So maybe I'll let Harriet speak to that a little bit.
2: Okay, so I think in the first um, wave, because we didn't have um, the vaccine yet, we simply asked questions about people's willingness if a vaccine became available, how willing would they be to take it? But now that the vaccine is there, we thought it would be great to add some questions about attitudes, about vaccines. And we really feel like getting this data will help us as we think about how do we equitably distribute vaccines to all different groups, you know? Um, I think in the first wave, 32% of respondents said they would not be willing to get a vaccine and that was before it was developed. So we would want to see whether that has changed and then more nuanced, like within different subpopulations, what does that um, uptake look like? And more importantly, what are the attitudes around that? And I think I also would like to add that um, our next steps in disseminating this information is that we are interested in, you know, Sharing the research with community members who helped us, um, you know, set up questions. And we got an email from LGH um, last week, and they were writing a proposal for vaccine education. So they are putting in a proposal, they're applying for some funds, and they want to do vaccine education. And so we were able to share our data about. vaccine willingness to take a vaccine with them and they were able to include that in their proposal. And so it's great to see that this work is actually very impactful um, to the community members and maybe even other community members that were not involved at the at the initiation stages when we're creating this, but to see that they see the value in this type of data and that they can use it meaningfully. Thank
1: you. Yeah on our end, I mean we Just had a release of what's called ALICE data, which is Assets Limited Income Constrained Employed across the state of Pennsylvania, literally released it yesterday. Uh, It's really important economic data, but it, as I've mentioned before, relies on sort of census data, and so it, it trails. And so this subset data that we can add to that level of understanding is so critically important because it's allowing us to be more specific to the now and tracking and comparing groups and risk factors and those things to what we're actually seeing and then being able to take the second set of data that's going to be coming out in a couple months to, as was mentioned earlier, compare what are the trends for those groups. And then we'll be able to add it to some of the other data that we track and say, oh, wow, these groups are really, really accelerating towards challenge. And we need to think about what as a community we're doing to provide safety net, to provide stoppage to that direction or that pacing, and also thinking about what are the solutions we need to provide. This community a couple of years ago in the city did a whole poverty coalition and came out with a report with suggestions on how to help the communities we have who are in poverty to get out of that. And one of the questions I have is, how much has this changed the calculation? And without knowing what has changed, we can't understand how we adjust the solutions.
0: Great. Thank you. So my last question, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our Lancaster listening audience with? Sure.
1: (laughs) I just want to express appreciation for everyone who is willing to be honest and vulnerable and take the survey. I want to thank The many companies who stepped up during COVID and gave us funding and asked us to provide leadership with the funding they gave. And this is one of the things we did with that funding. And I want to also invite communities to understand United Way of Lancaster County is a place that they can give funding if they're interested in seeing this kind of results focused and results oriented work. It's really important for us to not just be swinging in the dark. And so we're grateful for the financial support of our many funders and individuals in the community, and and that we really believe that that philanthropy can come when individuals make small gifts as well as large gifts. So, you know, we've been really pushing this year to say, Hey, if you have 20 bucks, you know, we're doing a thing right now called project SOS share our stimulus. We're inviting people to share part of their stimulus checks because the stimulus was distributed equally and we want to redistribute it equitably because some people have more needs than others in the community and they want to help. And we're making a process whereby we can help.
3: Yeah. I would just add to that, that I think um, I speak for the whole, research team here at FNM and I say that we're just very excited about the collaborations that we formed and are really excited about getting these results out into the community to hopefully help inform people what's going on but also to help make positive change like the example that Harriet gave about LGH so we're just excited to get this out as soon as we can.
2: And I think just to add to that, as somebody who does lead poisoning research in the community, um, it was just a great chance to, you know, contribute in a different way to the communities that we live or work in. And I think um, thanks on my part also goes to CSEWL for sending out the call and being very, you know, aggressive in a nice way in making sure this happened and accommodating numerous meetings and times with us just to um, make sure this worked and for getting us to meet Kevin. I didn't know Kevin before that. So yeah, thank you so much. And of course, to all, you know, Lancaster residents, Lancaster County residents who actually did take the time to answer all the questions on the survey, much appreciation to all of you. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having these conversations. So thank you.
0: Thank you all for your participation today. And um, it was a great conversation. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Nancy. Thank you so much for your time and for your energy and passion for the community.
0: You've been listening to Franklin and Marshall College's Cecil's Research Spotlight. Every episode, we're going to highlight how F&M faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. You can find us at bit.ly that's B-I-T backslash sustained engagement Lancaster, all one word.